This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Airspace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Southwest and some other COVID vaccination rules that airlines are starting to enforce for their employees. And we'll talk a little bit about the recovery still, uh, kind of a, an update for the fall season here about uh, COVID and where the airlines are going. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Digiprop, which is a program looking at the use of thermoplastics and braiding and some other interesting techniques for making uh, propellers. And we've got a bunch of EVTOL news we'll chat through today. Alakai and their Sky Hydrogen EVTOL uh, is looking for investment. We'll talk about their design and some of the challenges there. Honda's also throwing their hat into the ring, developing a hybrid electric EVTOL. And uh, we've also got some announcements from Ehang on their VT30. Uh, some clarity on Airbus as they expi- explain their design behind the city Airbus. And lastly, uh, just some interesting um, info about battery swaps and whether this might be something that could come to aviation or maybe it won't work. We'll see. Um, so, Alan, let's start with Southwest. So, they're the latest airline to uh, mandate their staff, all 56,000 employees, to get vaccinated by December 8th. And of course, this comes at the heel of a of an article by Al Jazeera uh, that says the global airline industry has seen a two hundred billion dollars, two hundred one billion dollar uh, loss due to COVID nineteen. So, is this just the latest airline just trying to protect themselves as much as they can? Obviously, hiring and the workforce is a very difficult. It's a very difficult time to find employees and to keep everyone up and running. I mean, how do you view? Is this like the the natural progression here that all these airlines are doing this? Well, United did it a little while ago, and now Southwest is into the same position. I think uh, I think American and Delta are in the same boat at the moment. Uh, I think they have a, a really hard time with this. We're already seeing uh, the same sort of prescriptive: uh, you either have a vac- vaccine, or you or you're fired, and we don't have to provide severance, which is a nice little twist. Uh, that is not working well in my area right now. In New York State has had a big purge in a sense of where they're just firing all the healthcare workers that refuse vaccinations. And that includes all staff. It's not just nurses and doctors. It's everybody that works around the hospital, food service, clean, uh, janitorial people. That's a big deal. Uh, and I'm not sure in, a, in the sort of uh, environment today that it, this is a good long-term solution for the airlines. I know at the short term, it, it raises some uh, PR. It makes people a little more comfortable to go fly, I think. But do I really care if the line mechanic has a vaccination or not or has previously had COVID? I, I don't think I care as a f- part of the flying public. Uh, it seems like more of a personal decision. So when these companies are stepping in into sort of healthcare matters, in America, it's going to be a problem. There's going to be a 10 to 20% of the population that will not participate in that, regardless of what goes down. And at a time when the airlines are struggling, I'm not sure you need any laying off employees or letting basically firing employees. I'm not sure that's a smart move. I think there's other ways you could have gone about it, but here we are. 
Do you think that, do you think this is going to get mandated beyond airlines right now? Do you think <laughs> this is just sort of going to be a universal thing? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, part of this announcement from Southwest is that they're a, a federal contractor, right? So the U.S. government mandate therefore applies to them. And that's the same boat for American, uh, a couple other airlines. Um, you know, Delta is also a federal contractor, but they have not um, made this announcement yet. Who knows if they will? It seems like it's probably coming. Yeah. And of course, United, United mandated vaccines for their staff. And it says 96% have given proof of inoculation. So um, trying to meet that deadline, which was a week ago. So it seems like it's working, number one. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think mandating vaccines is the right move. But then again, it seems like we're going to have to live with COVID forever. Like it's just so, I mean, we will live with the flu forever. COVID's more contagious than that. It seems like it's never going to go away. So for companies that want to get back to normal, um, especially if they're on the hook for some of those healthcare costs, which um, which airline was was talking about that? Was that United who said that, you know, if you don't want to get vaccinated, we don't want to pay for, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it was them or not, I can't remember, but yeah, they don't want to pay for, you know, that, that expense. If you don't want to, it's going to be more expensive to get your health care if you don't want to get vaccinated. And I think that's, it's interesting. Um, I don't really have a, a, a stance on it either way at the moment, but you know, people have a right to control their own destiny. But again, when it can, when it also affects a company that needs to move forward, you know, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, comp it's complex. So, but you know, it's complicated. Yeah. Because, yeah, you have a right to do what you want, but our company has the right to do what they feel is best for the company as well. And if those two things don't align, then maybe you have to find another company to work for. You know, that, that's, I don't know. No one has a right to work for any given company, right? You don't have a right to work for Southwest. You choose to work with Southwest. And Southwest chooses to employ you and, and play by the rules there too. So it's, you know, with private companies, it's hard to, it's hard to know. But yeah, I think people do have to kind of play by their rules. They, 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 they will short term, right? I think uh, it all depends on how rigorous the, <laughs> the validation is. I think a lot of people in the United States have already had COVID. I think there's a really good argument to make about if you already have had COVID, do you need to have the vaccination? And also, a large part of Southwest is in Texas in terms of operations. And I'm, I'm when it, when you hear any when you hear any vaccination number that's above 75, 80%, you really wonder if that is a true, true accurate number because the vaccination numbers around the world are somewhere in the 75 to 80%, then it then it kind of tops out. So I, I'd be surprised if any airline had really 95 plus percent um, vaccination status. I wonder if some of that has been doctored or not. But hey, that's the world we live in, right? I, I think there's going to be some big time drawbacks when the next union negotiation happens because it's going to come up. And I think, I think the unions have, will have enough power to drive that out of the negotiations. Like you can't, you can't start firing union workers because they're not vaccinated with something that you prescribe, because I think from the union's perspective, where does it stop? Right. I, I think, you know, there's, it's, there's a slippery slope argument going on right now. And that's a valid argument to have, uh, but workers are not without rights, and particularly in the airline industry. The, the unions are 
relatively strong. So when you when, when the next go around happens, I, I'm curious to see if this starts a little bit of a fight. And it probably will. But it uh, looks like global capacity for airlines is about 70% of 2019 levels. So that's encouraging that that rebound has happened. It was around that level back in July and then took a dive back uh, between August and, and September when you know the outbreak started to accelerate again. But it's like we're getting there, but 70% is pretty low. That's not like that's a high amount, but it's obviously a lot better than what it was in 2020, which was nothing essentially. So, right. Yeah. So the rebound is the rebound is rebounding. I guess we can put it that way and we'll see how the vaccination stuff continues to impact that. But I mean, that might make people more apt to go fly when they know all the employees on, you know, walking the aisles have been vaccinated and, and most people on a flight with have been vaccinated as well. So, Maybe that gets confidence back up where people get out there. We'll see. Um, so moving on, some interesting engineering stuff. So Alan, this Digiprop uh, project where they're looking at new ways to develop uh, composite propeller blades, uh, specifically for turboprop aircraft. So obviously these are complex shapes. They have a lot of contours. They're difficult. Um, what are some of the things that this, digi- this digital propulsion um, project is, is trying to solve? Well, when you have to lay up a prop, there's a couple of ways to do it composites-wise. Um, there's been, in some cases, a lot of it, I think, is still hand layup uh, on the construction, which then adds a, a lot of cost. And the, the complexities of the shape uh, are only getting uh, more complicated as we go along, right? It's not like the 1950s. You got basically one sort of prop design now. Because we have computational fluid dynamics and the computation power, we can make really efficient propellers that maximize thrust or be noise quieting or whatever you want to do. So you're getting some really unique shapes and composites-wise that can be uh, difficult to make. And and what this project is doing in conjunction with, it looks like GE Aviation, is they're basically making a tool and then uh, winding com- carbon fiber over top of that tool, much like you would overbraid a wire harness. I'm going to put this in the electrical world for a minute. So if you have a wire harness, you actually, you're trying to shield it from uh, lightning or or rocks and dirt and debris and stuff. You actually can weave a, a a sleeve over top of it, and that's what this propeller is relatively doing. They're just kind of weaving the the com- composite structure onto this tool. You can define where the the strength is, where the strength isn't. You can really minimize the weight impact. You can uh, uh, put fiber exactly where you want it, which is fantastic. And the, but the second piece is this is they're using thermoplastics. And so instead of using a standard uh, uh, thermal set resin prepreg kind of thing, they're using um, thermoplastics to bind to bind this all together. And the benefit of thermoplastics is um, it just, they're really just tough. You know, they're just a toughened system. Uh, they're immune to most chemicals. They just are just a real durable system. The, the thing about thermoplastics, though, is that they're expensive. And uh, so you want to try to minimize waste in that situation, uh, which this sort of weaving process will do. So you just have a lot less waste, a lot less uh, expense, even though using a much more expensive material, you're trying to minimize the overall cost of a propeller. So there's some interesting technology here, Dan. And I think uh, this technology has been kind of used as sort of sock sleeve methods been used for some aircraft structures 
not a lot of them because not a lot of opportunity to do that. But I think we're going to see it more and more. And the thermoplastic piece, which is the interesting part, uh, not a lot of thermoplastics used on airplanes today because of the cost issue. So we got to find a way to lower the cost to use thermoplastics because they're such great materials and they are recyclable, which is that other piece, right? So the recyclable piece drives a lot, is going to be driving a lot of designs, particularly in Europe and eventually in the United States that thermoplastics have been sitting around for 30 years plus on the sidelines, like, hey, we're recyclable and everybody's been, well, you're more expensive. So it doesn't matter. We're going to just going to go use the most inexpensive thermoset. But those rules are changing and that world is evolving and thermoplastics are coming into their own. So I expect to see more thermoplastics used. And it's good that GE Aviation is actually participating in this because they can provide the funding and some of the engineering resources to to bring it to reality, which is good. So, you know, as this as the different tapes are sort of braided around this mandrel in the center, does that mean that the final the final propeller is hollow inside? Yeah. Yeah. Or they can, or they could fill it. Um, there, there are different techniques to sort of make a shell and then uh, put some structure inside of it too. But again, it adds labor. So if you can make this thing stiff but light because it's mostly hollow or is hollow, even better, right? All right, so let's move on to our EVTOL segment today. So a bunch of different designs to talk through. Number one. Uh, Alakai, which is spelled A-L-A-K-A apostrophe I, they have their Sky Hydrogen EVTOL, which looks more like a bus shaped, like it's clearly meant for multiple passengers, maybe like six or eight. And uh, but they're looking for this to be a hydrogen powered aircraft. So, Alan, what are some of the differences before we talk about the actual design of it? What are some of the differences, pros and cons of using hydrogen for an EVTOL versus electricity? Well, it's weight and energy density. That's 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 it. Uh, that hydrogen <laughs> essentially doesn't have any mass. You're going to have some storage tanks to hold it. Uh, but unlike lithium-ion batteries, it's just a lot less weight for the energy density. So you have a lot more energy density. You're kind of approaching aviation fuel in a sense. Uh, so the it that's the advantageous part of this is that you had a couple of, of hydrogen tanks, which you can do pretty inexpensively and lightweight because you make them out of carbon fiber. And you can have a lot of energy storage on the aircraft, which is the problem that electric battery powered aircraft are having is like, where do I stuff all these batteries to get to do my mission? Hydrogen will not have that problem. And so, I mean, that seems like a pretty great pro. So why don't more companies want to tackle hydrogen right now? It has to do with the uh, ability to refuel it, mostly, uh, that uh, if uh, there's electricity everywhere, there's not hydrogen everywhere. Now, if you're having dedicated sites where you're mostly flying to, then hydrogen will most likely be available at those airports or at those landing spots. But there's electricity is everywhere. And so you can, in theory, land almost anywhere in a, in a battery-powered electric aircraft and and uh, refuel, quote unquote, refuel. You really can't do that with hydrogen today. And that, I think that's the big concern on the automotive side and on the aircraft side is like, where are these refueling stations and how is this going to work? Because technology wise, hydrogen is well understood. You, you have a hydrogen, you have a fuel cell, which basically takes a hydrogen and starts making electricity in the aircraft, which then is used to spin a bunch of motors, which provide the lift. Conceptually, 
that's it. It's not particularly complicated. Not a lot of moving parts here. It's just where do I refuel it? And that's 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 the problem today. And so it, it looks like they're looking for funding. Um, they need more investment, uh, which obviously every aircraft company does. Um, I mean, are investors going to be reticent to take something like this on? Or, I mean, are they pretty comfortable with the electric sector? Obviously, like, you know, a, lo- a lot of companies have gone public uh, with their electric EVTOL models. Um, I mean, what, what would be the investor hang up here? I think the hydrogen is, is the one right now because there's so much momentum on uh, <laughs> all the SPACs around like Joby and Archer on these electric aircraft that have wings. And Sky doesn't have wings. It's more like a drone. Uh, so it looks like a, basically an SUV with a couple of propellers on top that provide lift. So it, it's a much smaller thing. So from the investment standpoint, if you're looking to do those Uber type runs or those lift type runs where you're getting from my driveway to the local pizza shop, you can't do that in a Joby. It's a, just a much bigger aircraft. Because it has wings, and those wings are big. It's providing lift, right? That's you have to do that with a battery-powered aircraft. With a hydrogen-powered aircraft, you have a lot of extra energy storage, so you can actually make like a helicopter-ish aircraft. So I could then, with Sky, go from my driveway to the pizza place in a sense because I have a, just a much smaller footprint, and I can I can land in a lot tighter places, which makes a lot more sense to me. So if I'm Uber. Or a, a company like Lyft, and I want to get in the aircraft market, I want to be able to land in places that are not airports all the time. Um, and the size of the vehicle is going to have something to do with the number of landing spots they have. So there's a really odd dynamic that's happening right now. And I, I, I'm i not sure why Sky's not getting a lot more looky. Uh, people just looking in the windows, checking them out, kicking the tires a little bit. Because I think they're going to be able to serve in metropolitan areas like Boston, New York, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., up and down the, the Northeast Corridor, I think they're going to be able to serve a lot more places with the vehicle they've designed than a, an Archer would. Gotcha. Well, we'll keep an eye on them. But, yeah, it seems interesting. They, they're doing something that's definitely outside the typical box at the moment. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what continues to come of that. Uh, Honda, which... I know you're a champion of Honda Jet. You know, they're pretty, um, they're sharp looking and they're very fuel efficient. Honda's done great work with their jet side. Uh, looks like they're now revealing new plans uh, for an EVTOL, sort of throw their hat in the ring, which again, them and Airbus have done this recently. So on September 30th, they announced that the Honda EVTOL, uh, will, which will be a hybrid, it'll be a gas turbine um, hybrid powered unit. But what do you think of this design? It's got some ducted, I guess, are those more rudders on the back than, or is that propeller? I mean, what, what do you, what do you see here with the design? I think it's still prototype design. It's still in that conceptual stage from what I can tell. Now I haven't talked to the, to the, <laughs> the people I know down at Honda. Uh, Cause I'm sure this is super top, top secret. They wouldn't tell me anyway. Uh, but the engineers at Honda are really smart and aerodynamic they know what they're talking about uh i i think what honda is doing and some of these others are doing is they're looking at what the real usage of the aircraft will be because when they announced this they had a honda had a little video that popped out uh describing the typical day of this uh evtol which was 
I'm in Boston and I have a, a meeting in Manhattan. And so I, I get up, I have breakfast, I hop in this shuttle and I, I make the, I think it's about 200 mile-ish kind of flight. Uh, I fly down to New York, I have my meeting and I'm back home by supper. That's totally different than sort of the Joby, Uber, Archer, Pick'em uh, approach at the moment, which are a lot of 30, 40 flights, short flights a day within a metropolitan area. So Honda's thinking more of uh, a vehicle that's like an entry vehicle to their jets, right? So their jets can go several hundred, several thousand miles on a tank of fuel. Uh, this aircraft is is much more sort of city to city jumps, major metropolitan area to major metropolitan area, Houston probably to Dallas, uh, Miami to Tampa kind of thing. There's a really an interesting niche in there. And it would be hard to say that Honda doesn't mess around. Like they, someone has thought about what those journeys look like and what, how we design a vehicle to fit into that mode. And, and meanwhile, and Dan, have you looked at the Airbus design, which is sort of a competing design to the, to the Honda? Have, have you seen how Airbus is also talking about sort of shorter flights and a simpler aircraft than some of these others that are much more complicated? It's, there's just so many engineering things going on here right now that are all competing. And you kind of wonder, SPAC-wise, investment-wise, where the money is. Uh, because it feels like we got a billion dollars sitting, or a couple, couple billion dollars in investment money sitting in California at the moment, and yet uh, California hasn't been a real boon for aircraft in 30, 40 years. It's just odd now. Uh, don't you feel it? Like Honda's in. Uh-oh. <laughs> Airbus is in. Uh-oh. <laughs> Bell's going to be in. Uh-oh. What are you going to do? Uh you're competing against companies that just have the wherewithal to do it. Yeah, and like we've mentioned, that that seems like a it seems like entering the game a little bit later was probably probably paid off because let other people kind of duke it out and see what's going on, see what markets others. Because at this point, you figured out what what market other competitors are probably going after, and then you could say, hey, there's a hole, there's a there's a niche here that we could fill. Can we design something that will hit this market and let them? they can do their thing we'll just do this other thing um yeah i feel like that makes sense from a business case standpoint for sure yeah i, I think uh, someone's got to do the non-uber part of this where is it and uh, you know I, I think airbus and honda are stepping into that mode already which is really fascinating because the next three or four years are going to be a lot of aircraft development well and like you said you know the the lighter aircraft are more dangerous like all right they crash um, pilot error. And so if someone's got the money and wants to sort of puddle jump and get to work or go here, go there, go see the, the grandkids or whatever, um, you know, they could have their million dollar electric vertical takeoff landing vehicle. It's probably gonna be a lot safer, a lot more obviously high tech. And like you said, you could lose a propeller and still be fine. And, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So might make might make sense where like, yeah the the husband or the husband or wife you know you know whoever whoever doesn't want it they might be more okay with it you know not just the wife anymore oh the wife will let me get this but like yeah the, the husband or the wife they don't care they don't think I'm gonna die in this new high tech thing so I can get a I can get a EVTOL but I can't get a you know a light sport or something like that so that could like I said could be could be a different market for it um, than some of the other uses so speaking of which uh, Ehang 
their longer range, and they have a couple, they have two models, their longer range VT30 um, is has been unveiled. Yeah, so Ehang had some tough press earlier in the year, being accused sort of of not really having much going, sort of falsifying some documents and some information. Um, but they still seem to have been, they're chugging along, and they've announced uh, more about this VT30, uh, which definitely has a, a unique design. Alan, what do you think of their their longer-range passenger vehicle here? Well, I, I, I guess... It- it may be filling a, an, another niche in China. I don't see this aircraft leaving China for a while, m- multiple years, uh, unless you know the like in Japan they decide they're just going to let it in uh, without having all the certification things we would typically do for any sort of aircraft. Uh, Yihang seems to be creating aircraft without necessarily meeting all the international standards on a lot of different areas i think so there's a, there's a growing concern about it um you know from an investment standpoint i think there's uh, still questions about where they're going and can they generate the kind of revenue i think it all depends on what the government allows them to do honestly uh, if the government in china decides to look the other way and let these aircraft be created and sold and they can start selling flights on them and not have them go through the hundreds of millions of dollars it takes to quote unquote certify an aircraft in the United States or Europe. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they could make some money if they get stuck into doing the the same sort of rigorous flight testing and all the safety evaluation and all the other things that come along with aircraft development. It's hard, Dan. There's a lot of aircraft companies start up and most of them fail. Because the costs and the complexities are so high to get anything real and to make money on it, um, it's, it's a huge impediment. And that's, and that's why you see companies like Joby and Archer and the rest of them are not necessarily aircraft companies. They are rideshare companies because I think the aircraft sales by themselves won't do it. But somehow Eang thinks they're going to be able to, to make money on sales. We'll see. Well, and so last week we talked about Airbus and you expressed, you know, we both expressed that we weren't exactly sure what their target was and what their goal was and um, what, so, and so what their design was sort of built around, but they've um, kind of explained a little bit more this, this week. So Alan, what did you learn about, about Airbus and and some of, of what they're going for with their, their new city Airbus design? Well, Dan, it looks like they're just trying to keep it simple. And that's essentially it. Don't try to push too hard, which then puts the safety of the aircraft at risk. Control how far it would normally fly. I think a lot of European cities are closer to one another than in the United States. That makes it a little bit easier. And then they probably looked at what the routes would be, how long they would be flying, and and where the sweet spot is. So they're not pushing the envelope, so to speak, and Airbus knows how to design airplanes, if, if that's not obvious already. And they've been doing a lot of, uh, they have, obviously have Airbus helicopters. They know how to do helicopters. Uh, I, I think they've been working on a number of designs over the years, and they've flown some of them. And they've put out press releases, but they really haven't gone anywhere. So it seems like now Airbus is basically saying, hey, let's keep this thing simple. Let's don't make it overly expensive. Let's just make it super reliable and do one sort of task extremely well. And that's a great 
product. I think do what you do the best you can in the world. And, and no one else is, is going to be really to compete with that, I think. Particularly if they slap on the Airbus name on the side of it, it has a lot of weight in terms of sales. Because, Dan, it's just like buying a, a new car. I know there's a couple of, of electric vehicle manufacturers that are starting up in the United States. Uh, what's There's a couple in Ohio, one, one in Ohio, one in Illinois. Uh, Levian is that is that one of them? Or Rivian? Rivian's one of them. Have you have you heard of that? Rivian, yeah, yeah. So if I'm, it's a cool kind of SUV, electric SUV sort of thing. Something that Tesla doesn't make. My concern with those is that they could be a great vehicle. Same thing uh, with uh, uh, you know a non-brand name <laughs> like an like an Archer sort of thing that doesn't have any doesn't have any infrastructure there. There's no service centers. There's no, there's nobody there to support it. Right. Uh, so even though there may be a cool automobile out there or a cool aircraft, if I can't get it fixed or get parts for it, it's pretty much doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to purchase it. Airbus carries that weight because they have all that infrastructure already pre-built. So there's a huge advantage for Airbus to enter that marketplace and be uh, an immediate dominant leader just because, they have the service dealers. They have the infrastructure. They have all the people in place to answer the phone. And some of the other aircraft companies don't right yet. So that that's what I think, Dan. Do you, do you kind of see that too, that Airbus really can carry some weight in the marketplace? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're especially, you know, if you're one of these airlines that might like buy from them or partner with them, I think you're pretty comfortable partnering with Airbus. It's a big name. You know, you're going to have, like you said, a lot of support. And if something goes wrong all that stuff that they're going to be there. So yeah, I, I, I agree. I get that. So they're going to have some clout for sure. As all as these bigger players enter the market. Yeah. And one of which could be this interesting concept. Um, so it's an interesting uh, video. This is from general aviation news um, of a person swapping out batteries of a, of a, like a more of like a, like a Vespa. And, uh, and so, you know, you see this person pull over and pull this pretty large battery out of, you know, these two large batteries that are underneath the seat. And they put them in this big bank that has probably 40 of them right there. Just push these big batteries, which are kind of like the size of a, maybe like a two quart milk container. And, you know, push a couple of buttons. And then it sort of says, hey, you can take these two, pulls them out, puts them in the thing and then goes, which is really cool. They don't, don't have those in the U.S. Uh, the scooter market, uh, like the smaller, like actual, like the kick scooter kind Um they are now all switching to swappable batteries. So people aren't rounding up electric scooters anymore in their pickup truck or their box truck at night, taking them home to charge them, then putting them back out in the market or on the streets, which is what that's what the model was up all up until now. A couple companies now have swappable batteries. So now people will just come around, yank the batteries, put in a fresh one and they're on their way, which makes so much more sense logistically. And um, it just allows the scooters to stay out there. So, uh, is this something, the big question here is, is this something that could come to the EVTL market in the future? Or is this the size and the complexity of these batteries, the way they're engineered into the aircraft? Is that going to be a limitation where it's maybe not going to be realistic? Well, that, that's a really good question, Dan, because I, you have seen this in other industries. Like when Chevrolet started with the Volt and, and some of the predecessors to it, there was always talk about dropping out the battery pack on a car and putting a new battery pack in it as a refueling station, which is a battery swap out. And that, that hasn't 
come to fruition because Tesla's never needed it, I guess, that because they can charge the battery so fast to get you back on the road. Uh, on an airplane, though, it's going to use a lot more energy, right? There's a, there's a lot more energy usage, I think. And they, even though they talk about it, it takes less energy than driving a Tesla. Mm. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot bigger, there's a pretty good sized battery pack in there. And airplanes tend to want to have short turnaround times. They kind of need to. Uh, I think Pipistrol's design has a removable battery stack in the front of it. So you can actually pull some batteries out, put some in. Uh, by Aerospace's design out in Colorado, I think that's more of a quick charge situation. You can charge the batteries fast enough. But I think Veda's design up in Vermont up here, uh, I think the way they've designed that battery pack, in, in a sense, it's like all one place sort of towards the middle of the aircraft where you could, in theory, pull some batteries out and put some new batteries in, which may be advantageous for the customer UPS. Like if if you need a quick turnaround, you just you could probably swap batteries. It may be a thing to go do. So the, I, th I think the concept is there is whether you could really implement it or not. Like where do you have all these batteries stacked around all of the place? Well, if I'm UPS, maybe I do. Maybe that's what I do. It's because I'm UPS and I can manage that. Whereas if I was just a regular owner, and I landed in, you know, sort of nowhere, Massachusetts, the chances of me having another battery pack to swap is essentially zero, right? So I think I think the technology makes sense, though, don't you? I, I think it, it all depends on where we're going, right, as a country, as, as a country or as a world on, are we going to go all electric or not? And if we are, is that part of the mix, this, this battery swap out thing? And what what standard do we make it to? Think of it this way, Dan. You know, the big the big controversy in Europe, well, one of the controversies in Europe, because there's multiple at the same time, is like the iPhone charger plug, right? That that they actually have I've seen commercials in the I think it's from the UK or European Union at least, that are fighting for a common standard so that they don't have to replace any of the chargers. They pa they passed it, yeah, just recently. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense because there's yeah, we're charging them all the same way. Like they're all getting charged. Why do we have four different connectors? And then, and this is the thing with laptops too. They all still have proprietary, mostly proprietary connectors. Apple has USB-C -C charging. A couple other smaller notebooks have USB-C charging, but they're still like I have a Lenovo and that's got its own weird plug. And it's like, I've got to buy, you know, it's just, it adds waste when there, you know, there's so many of these, but yeah, you're right. And that's the question with this so the company that's doing this battery swap in the video is called Gogoro, and that's in Taiwan. Um, but I think part of it is, like you said, if you're if this is in a city and you can swap a new battery multiple different places, that makes sense because it makes less sense when you then wonder, say this was for an aircraft that you own and you're in you know Massachusetts, you fly to Kansas, you stop over, grab a new battery, and then you fly somewhere else. And then you realize that one battery was maybe a little faulty or like it wasn't very good. There's a quality issue with it. Like, is that your battery now? Like, how do you get rid of that battery? Like, you don't want to be stuck with something in that scenario. Whereas if you're constantly running around a city, just, oh, you can just swap it at another place. And like, it doesn't really matter which battery, you know, if you get a defective one once in a while, okay, you just go grab another one down the street. But, um, but I think you're right with, if it's the, the ride share model where UPS has its own stations for their back and forth of their package delivery uh, aircraft, yeah, they just have they own a hundred batteries, and they'll just swap with a forklift if they're that heavy. You know, whatever it is, they have their own little thing where it's just like, yeah, they're going to be obviously really, really heavy. So it's going to have to be some sort of system where you know 
forklift comes out, pulls it out, whatever, puts in the new one and they're good to go. And if it's the ride sharing thing where they're landing on a, you know, a heliport or whatever it is, um, that like, you know, like bull copters port idea. Yeah. They just have a bunch of batteries and swap them out and they own all the batteries. They own all the aircraft that makes sense, but you're right. If it's this nationwide flying around thing, it's probably a lot more complicated to do that absolutely yes but it's definitely an interesting idea because this is where batteries have gone like i said with the scooters it makes total sense um with these uh vespas makes total sense um but like you said it's got to be a sort of universal standard if you have one brand of vespa or one brand of scooter and it doesn't take the other brand like if we got to that point where everyone uses the same sort of brick brick battery that would cut cut down a lot of waste it would drive costs down it would make you know there'd be other manufacturers just like with cam- cameras camera batteries you can buy you know like i'm filming on a sony camera i can buy an off-brand battery or i can buy a sony battery if i want to spend more i can buy the sony one which i don't so i buy the cheaper one because they're probably all made in the same place with mostly the same quality of cells so you know it'd probably be good for the industry in general to get to a, a universal standard like you mentioned it, it will be it's just a question whether they're going to do it yeah for sure well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, be sure to leave us a, a review. Subscribe wherever you listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube. And we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radon lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.